This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison, and today I'm in Seattle, Washington, speaking with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is the first Indian American woman in the House of Representatives, representing Washington's 7th District, which is most of Seattle and the neighboring areas, including Edmonds. Her district is a model for the rest of the country on issues like minimum wage and racial equity. She's a leading national advocate for debt-free college, Social Security and Medicare expansion, as well as environmental, immigrant, and civil and human rights. She's the vice-ranking member of the House Budget Committee for the Democrats and vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. In 2013, President Barack Obama recognized her as a champion of change, and today she continues to advocate for real, tangible progress in the country in D.C. I am so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so thrilled to be here, and thank you for all of your amazing work over the years, Amy. Well, we met over the phone uh, a couple of years ago, or maybe, you know, a little uh, 18 months ago or so, and uh, at that time we were talking about women of, women in, uh, of color in politics. You had an interest yourself in helping women, and then you became one of the women. <laughs> what was it uh, that really called you into leadership at this time? Well, you know, I've been an activist for most of my life for the last 20 years and working on immigrant rights and um, women's issues, women's equity issues, social justice issues, income inequality from the outside. And I never thought I would run for office myself. I really thought that was for somebody else. I was good on the outside. That's where I should stay. And then a couple of years ago, um, the seat came up for the state Senate. And I, people had been asking me to run for a long time. It had never been something I thought of doing. But I finally realized that I was actually tired of having spent, you know, 15, 20 years trying to get other people in elected office to do the things that I thought that they should be doing for our communities. And I was also tired of not seeing the representation that I thought we needed to see, where people would intuitively know and understand what needed to be done versus trying to convince somebody that it was right to work on immigration reform or right to work on issues that women of color face or minimum wage. And so I just decided to run for the state Senate. And that was in 2014. I got elected to the state Senate. I was the first um, Indian American ever elected to the state legislature, and I was the only woman of color in the state Senate at the time. Wow. And that really opened my eyes to how deep the disproportionality is of representation and how important it is, given the things that I ended up fighting for in the state Senate. Um, and not that there weren't other colleagues that also had good voices on some of the issues, but I'll never forget, we were talking about police accountability one day in caucus, in our Democratic caucus, and it was a very difficult conversation. And it was about body cameras and a number of other things, complex issues. And at the end of it, I walked out and one of the communication staffers who had been there for 20 years said, Senator Jayapal, I just want to tell you that in the 20 years that I've been here, we have never had the perspectives that you just brought to the room represented. And so I really think that that's important. So when the seat for Congress came up, um, my interest has frankly always been on the federal level. I ran for the state Senate in part because 
I felt like there were issues that were devolving to the state that had not been there before, and it was a good time for me to even see if I liked politics. But when the congressional seat came up and I realized I could run for it, I realized that that was really where my passion was in terms of immigration, in terms of you know a lot of the federal policy, international foreign policy, very relevant right now, given what's just happened in Syria. Um, and so I decided to run and uh, very proud to have had that path and now to be the first Indian American woman in the House of Representatives and the first woman to represent this district Re ever. It's amazing. And actually the first person of color in the Washington Democratic delegation, the state's Democratic delegation to Congress has never had a person of color before. You know, I was uh, reading or rereading Shirley Chisholm's uh, memoir, which I is now more book. than 40 years old, yes. that unbought and unbossed. And in the introduction, there was a nod to how she was asked when she was the first uh, black woman in Congress, how does it feel? And she, ah, what do you mean, how does it feel? Um, and in some sense, uh, she, the way she responded, she bristled a little bit, but she also said, this is, she was clear that this was a new path. So uh, without being, <laughs> without asking the same question, what is it like for you to be the only one or such a trailblazer, especially now in the first hundred days of the Trump presidency uh, with all the stuff, Syria and the, the, the Muslim ban and all the things that are happening around us? You know, I think women of color in Congress are playing a very important role, particularly now in a Trump presidency. I think they always have. Shirley Chisholm, that memoir, I read it um, when I was running for office and loved it. And I think, you know, what she represented was so important, the fire, the passion, kind of the, the ability to just keep going, regardless of whether you have mainstream support or not. Because often when you're the first, you don't have that kind of support. You actually build the path for people to come after you, as she did. Um, and so, uh, but I think that if you look at Barbara Lee, if you look at, you know, um, uh, Shirley, uh, uh, if you look at uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, if you look at Maxine Waters, if you look at um, Karen Bass, there's there's some tremendous, and now Kamala Harris in the Senate, Maisie Hirono, there are um, some tremendous women of color who really get the intersections between economic and racial justice the issues around gender justice that are on the table in such a significant way following this campaign where Trump, you know, really bullied everybody, um, women, people of color, immigrants. He has been so divisive. He has otherized so much. And I think women of color in particular really understand what it means to stand up for all parts of our movement. And so that has been very important. You know, somebody wrote an article and called me the anti-Trump. Mm. And I think... Wait, how's that feel to be called the anti-Trump? Well, I, I like it because so much of what he said is... Um, against so much of what who I am. And so I understand that that's what they're saying. At the same time, you know, I understand he got the support of a lot of working people across this country who were disgusted and disappointed with where even Democrats are. And so in that sense, I don't like it because I've always been a, a working people's advocate. And I have my district is, you know, largely white voters. And many of them even voted for Trump because there were only two Democrats in the race. And yet they voted for me as well. So wait, wait, how do you, what do you make of that? Because, uh, you know, we have I'm, I'm going to just true confessions. I I'm, I'm here in Seattle as a visitor. I'm uh, staying at a hotel that has a lot of business people. I ended up having dinner with three 
business guys who are visiting Seattle who are Trump supporters from Dallas. So they're not your, your constituents, but they're Trump supporters. You might ask why, why I did that, but I just wanted to hear. It's almost like people are listening to and dealing in a parallel universe. They're listening to Fox News, whatever's on their, uh, their social media feeds is really different. So the facts and the arguments they gave me, I just don't, I don't understand how we bridge that. I mean, you've talked about having Trump voters in your own district. Uh, should progressives be focused on understanding the frame of mind that would lead someone to uh, vote and support Trump right now? Because those three men certainly vote, support him now. Or should we shore up our own, um, you know, movements and point of view? Well, I think they're not. They're not actually separate things because a lot of people who voted for Trump used to be Democratic voters, and I'm not talking about the one-third of voters who are hardcore Republican, anti-immigrant, you know, looking for a racist way forward, frankly, which Steve Bannon has provided um, and Trump articulated during the campaign. I'm talking about working people, uh, both, uh, uh, you know, Caucasian, brown, and black, who are struggling in this country and have seen income inequality grow have seen that their kids no longer have the opportunity to go to college like they did, um, are working 40 hours a week in a job that is not paying them enough to put food on the table and a roof over their head. And they're terrified that they're not going to be able to retire with security. They're one healthcare crisis away from bankruptcy. These people are living in fear of life exploding on them. And we as Democrats have not done what we needed to do to really provide for that. And so they they are saying, look, I don't see a real difference between Democrats and Republicans. So I want somebody who's going to shake things up. So I'm going to vote for this guy. Now, I do think that since he's been elected, the difference is becoming clearer and clearer between Democrats and Republicans, in part because Democrats are standing up for things that we believe in. But the economics of it, it's not about identity politics versus economics, which was one read of the election right. that I thought was completely wrong. It is about opportunity. And we have to understand that if you're a person of color or if you're a woman or if you're an immigrant, your opportunity is much less than somebody else's. But Across the board, we're struggling because we simply don't have that economic opportunity. We don't have an American dream anymore. Those pieces are broken. Democrats need to get out and shore up economic opportunity for everybody. I, I just heard you say a very profound statement, which was, we don't have the American dream anymore. Uh, I mean, I certainly, you know, the millennials and uh, the younger uh, folks in, in the United States don't feel like they can buy a house, for example. Right. And other. Um, is that what motivated you to work with, you're working with Bernie Sanders on the College Access uh, for All Act. Yes. Is that free college? Right? It's free college. Is that possible in this country? It is absolutely possible. And yeah. not only that, Amy, it was something that we used to do in this country. New York University used to be tuition free. The University of California system, tuition free. We invested in Pell Grants for people. We invested in the GI Bill, which allowed millions of people to go to college for and be the first ones in their family to do that. We used to believe that education was the ladder to opportunity and that it was our responsibility and our privilege, frankly, to fund it. Because if we did, we understood we were investing in a cycle of prosperity. You go and get a higher education, 
then you know that you can get a better job. If you get a better job, you can take care of your family, you pay more taxes, you help the economy. Yeah. It continues to be in a right. cycle right. of prosperity. Right, but you have a generation of uh, uh, college students now who are graduating in incredible debt, 100,000, right. 200,000. I mean, well, the uh, average debt today, first of all, 82% of students who go to public universities and colleges have graduate with debt. The average debt is 30,000. It goes all the way up you know, as high as you can imagine. But that was never the case. Back when we paid a couple of decades ago, not that long ago, a few decades ago, we were first in the world for graduating people out of higher education. Today, we're 11th. There, we have $1.3 trillion in college student loan debt in this country. It's a bigger amount than we even have in credit card debt. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the federal government is actually profiting off of people's student loan debt. How's so, that? Well, How? because they charge interest at ridiculous amounts, and they actually make money off of these student loans. So our bill says, and it was a great honor to work with Senator Sanders. Bernie and I have been- uh, Well, you were supporting him. I supported his, him. Uh, I was one of his earliest supporters, yeah. um, state elected officials to support him, and he supported me. Um, you know, there were three of us that he endorsed way back, early, early, early in the campaign, back in March. And it was Lucy Flores, Zephyr Teachout, and me. And unfortunately, Lucy and Zephyr didn't make it, but I did. And he and I have been working together on a number of things. And so I ran on a promise to introduce a bill for free college. And so as soon as I got there, I started talking to him. And um, we, this bill, he has introduced different versions of it in the past, but we've updated it for a number of things. It, it, would, it basically takes on the Democratic Party platform that was agreed to last fall mm -hmm. um, to cover families earning up to $125,000. And then it says that if you're going to a community college, you can actually go free regardless of your income because most community colleges are in you know rural areas. A lot of folks, you don't have the highest earners going to community colleges in general. Um, and so what we're saying is, look, we want to make community college the access point for the most people free. We want to make um, four-year colleges, public universities and colleges, as well as minority-serving institutions, tribal colleges. We want to make those free for families earning up to 125000 And then we want to cut interest rates in half so that the federal government is not making a profit off of interest rates. And for those people who have student loan debt right now, which is an enormous number of people across yeah. the country, we want to allow them to refinance that debt at the lower rate. Well, see, this seems like something that a lot of people can get behind, but you've got a problem, which is that Democrats are in the minority, uh, both in the Senate and the House. So how do you get something like this? How do you get some traction behind some an idea, a bill like this? You organize. And this is where I'm so thrilled as an organizer. I come you as an organizer. You are an organizer. You That's come as an organizer. How many organizers are in uh, Very, the very few. I was going to do that calculation because somebody the other day said that there's there's only one electrician um, in the in the. Uh, in the House of Representatives. And I thought, I should find out how many organizers there are, because there aren't very many people who organize as their life. You know, they were community organizers before coming to Congress. Right, but so. does, as, an org as a former organizer, now a congresswoman, are you organizing your colleagues? Are you organizing the yes. constituents of your colleagues? All, what are you all, all of those things. So we've already gotten over um, two dozen signatures on the bill, Democratic colleagues, including the ranking member of the Education and Workforce Committee, Bobby Scott. Um, it's not typical for ranking members to get on a bill, but we talked this through and um, he's very, very supportive of it. Um, 
you know, New York State just passed this, as you probably know, they just passed a college for all bill that actually has a lower threshold than ours. It 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 covers families earning up to a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So it actually covers a few, you know, a little bit more. But um, we're very excited about this. Um, the students are fired up. And they are, we're now going out, the legislation is one piece, but now we're going out to college campuses across the country and we're going to spend many months now organizing rallies and events in districts across the country. This is not a partisan issue. Tennessee, Republican state, Republican governor, Republican Congress, they passed a free community college bill because they know that investing in education and higher education is absolutely essential. So I have to ask you as an, as an org, so it's interesting because uh, we often will understand, uh, particularly in the House and the Senate at the federal level, how many vets there are or how many uh, black people there are or whatever, whatever the slice is. I think you should do something about the organizers because yeah. it does change your it does. It changes how you think about it. You know, because because I, you know, I'm looking at the numbers of Democrat versus re- Republican. Honestly, it seems difficult to do anything, um, and just from the outside. Well, you know, I'll give you healthcare as an example because it's still a debate that we're in. But is it? Is not done? No, it's not done. They they are um, they so passed a rule change that says that they can bring forward another healthcare bill at any time. In fact, they even sent us a notice saying that we might call you back from reset, you know, from district work period if we have a bill to propose. They clearly want to continue the trend that they're on, which is to privatize Social Security, give vouchers to older people to get their Social Security, what used to be their Social Security benefits, take healthcare away from 24 million Americans, raise premiums for people between the ages of 50 and 64. Um, this is a disaster, what they're proposing. Everything they're proposing is a disaster. Are, are they organized amongst themselves no. enough to do... It seems like there's a lot of infighting. There is a lot of infighting. Um, there is a lot of infighting between their caucus. But we have to continue to be vigilant. But the only reason that we were able to get them to pull their bill back, um, they didn't have enough votes to pass the bill right before we went on, on recess uh, or on you know to district work period was because millions of Americans across this country turned out, started calling their Congress members in Republican and Democratic districts. They were at the town halls. They were demanding answers. The bill was, their Republican bill, which I call Trump Care, was polling at 17%. Mm. And that is because people understood that you cannot tell grandma that she's not going to get her nursing home care anymore, or kids who are on asthma inhalers that they're not going to get their care anymore. When they went back and they took out what was called the essential health benefits package, basically what they were saying is, hey, there's no minimum standard for insurance anymore. You, If you get sold insurance, you expect that you're going to get hospitalization paid for. Right. And by the way, after Obamacare was passed, we now expect that pre-existing conditions are going to be covered and maternity care is going to be covered. And all of a sudden they said, nope no standards anymore. We're going to take that away. And it was it was a massive overreach. But it was because of the organizing that people did across the country, that those moderate Republicans came out and said, we're not going to vote for this. And that's what we have to continue to do. And that's, you know, that's on the legislative side. Separately, 
Um, I'm really excited and hopeful about the fact that we have these very two close special elections, one to replace Secretary Tom Price in Georgia. That's a, uh, John, uh, John Ossoff, Ossoff in uh, six, Georgia six. Correct. And then the other one in Kansas, which is also a very important one. And I think we have the possibility of mobilizing people who are like, what can I do? What can I do? You know, women's marches, um, all the town halls we've been to, Indivisible, all these folks who are like, I'm awake now. I'm sorry I wasn't awake before, right. but I am awake now yeah. and I'm ready to go. And yeah. so we're mobilizing around those as well. And so there's both sort of an organizing strategy for being in the minority and a strategy to get us back into the majority. I, I want to talk to you about uh, the, what Trump and the forces we always call occupying the White House are doing uh, around uh, anti-immigration block, uh, the Muslim block is still proposing a wall. Other bans that they've tried twice and uh, failed when it was struck down by courts. You have a long history of organizing. Speaking of being an organizer uh, for immigrant rights, how are you bringing that experience into Congress? And and really, what what should we be uh, doing? How should we be organizing and thinking about how to deal with this right now? Well, if you believe in the universe putting the right person in the right place, sometimes I think that's a, a strangely and humbly what has happened because it's been an easier transition for me perhaps than for other new members who come in because the top two issues that have risen to the forefront are immigration and healthcare. And I've spent my life organizing on immigration issues. I worked on the 2013 bill that passed the U.S. Senate. Well, you yourself were an immigrant. You had I'm that an lived immigrant experience. myself. Yeah. I came here when I was 16 years old. My parents had about $5,000 in their bank account. They used the whole thing to send me here by myself because they felt like this was the place I was going to get the best education and have the most opportunity. And to go, it took me 18 years to get my citizenship. So I really know what the immigration system is about. And then I ended up starting after 9-11, what is now the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state, one of the largest in the country. We started actually because of the Bush administration's abuses of civil liberties and human rights and constitutional rights post 9-11 against Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities, that very quickly uh, transitioned into um, sort of a very intense set of efforts um, around special registration of Muslims that happened right after Bush came in, fighting the Patriot Act and civil liberties abuses with the Patriot Act, and then ultimately couple years down the road into fighting for comprehensive immigration reform. So very, very broad spectrum of work. And I ran that organization for 12 years. So I hit the ground running on these issues. I have the relationships. I have the knowledge of the issues. And it's been wonderful to use my organizing experience and the relationships with different groups around the country that we needed to mobilize to show up at the airports when Muslim Ban 1.0 was introduced. Well, I was talking to... Um the president of a well-known online progressive organization, one that name we all know, who said, it seems to me we need to build bridges between a largely white-led uh, and white membership kind of progressive movements and this multiracial led by people of color movements, the people that showed up at the airports. Uh, in order, we need the bridges between those in order to have a, a stronger movement to, to move forward. So there's a lot of confusion about where to direct our energy. Uh, what what are your what are your thoughts? I mean, you're an elected official now, so the movement has to support your work uh, as a legislator. Uh, 
where would you say is the best way to, the, you know, unite the different parts of the progressive movement and to focus our energy around immigrant rights? Well, one of the things I think that this administration has done is help to do that. I think that in some way, these overreaches have brought a lot of folks who are white um, progressives, but also just people who believe in the United States being an inclusive place, recognize that their own histories with immigration are not that far removed. And so at the airports, we did have a lot of white folks there who were supporting immigrants. And it's been wonderful to see kind of the breadth and depth of support against the Muslim ban and for the resistance efforts around immigration. And so in some ways, I think it has brought us much closer together to fight for things that have been people of color led. And there is more recognition of needing to really support immigrants and people of color and those efforts. So I see this as a very positive thing where some of our strong progressive organizations that have traditionally been white are finding these opportunities to engage with folks of color and the leadership of folks of color. And you look at the Women's March as an example where it was you know three women of color who kind of stepped up and said, all right, we're going to help folks who were very well-intentioned, who had the idea and really got it going, but we're gonna help to make this a more inclusive march that really addresses issues of communities of color and has those voices at the leadership. So I think it's been a positive experience for uniting us and for also bringing the leadership voices of communities of color forward. Now, as a, uh, a junior congresswoman, uh, just been in office, just uh, really just a very short amount of time, you're already vice chair of the Progressive Caucus. How did that come about? Uh, and uh, what are you going to do with that with that uh, position? Well, you know, I'm I've been good friends with Keith Ellison. Um, is a oh, is a wonderful yeah. and he's not chair. We, we had yeah. Last time I saw him, it was at uh, Democracy and Color held a DNC chair candidate forum. Yeah. Um, actually, the Monday after the Women's March, and he was there, and Tom Pettis was there, and some of the other candidates were there. Yeah. And Tom's yeah. a great guy, and you know, I was also named to the DNC Advisory Transition Committee. Um, one of just a couple of House members that were named. Really? So what does that mean for the... There, mean? there is now, Tom has formed, Chairman Perez has formed a transition committee for the DNC to really think about how, you know, what does the DNC need to do to really unite people and to win back our our future? Um, and so, and where is, how does the DNC need to transform itself? Because it's clear that the DNC was not what it needed to be. Well, when we looked at the numbers, more people voted third party in the states Clinton lost by single digits. More people voted third party than, than the difference of people who voted for Trump. So it's, it's people clear. are looking for things. They're, They're looking. looking. They're looking. They don't feel like the Democratic Party is answering. Uh, and, and, you know, I've, I feel that way. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. I eventually came over to Hillary, of course, when it got to the primary. But I think we need to understand that the energy of the country is that they feel like they've been abandoned by both parties. And that's why Trump ended up winning. So the Democratic Party has to transform itself. I'm very excited. I mean, I, I was a supporter of Keith Ellison's for chair of the DNC, but I know and have worked with Tom. I think he's going to be great. I think the two of them together um, are going to be very, very good colleagues. Um, Tom is going out on the road with Bernie Sanders. I saw that email. Yep. 
Yeah, so that's going to you know, be interesting. And I was appointed, and I'm a Bernie, I'm a clear Bernie Sanders supporter, but um, I was appointed to the transition committee. I think they're really trying to bring the different parts of the Democratic Party together and reassess what we have to do differently. Do I? I you know, it's it's no secret. Democracy and color. Where our analysis is, the party has a race problem. The the uh, in terms of understanding who the core voters are. For example, women of color being the highest turnout and the most loyal Democrats um, in the party. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to say it, you don't have to say it, but I don't think uh, women of color, for example, get the uh, respect and um, their work isn't centered on. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, and so, and, and I think they have a, you know, there's an issue that um, Chairman Pettis is going to have to deal with, which is the uh, the amount the millions of dollars every couple of years raised and spent spent on TV ads instead of on the ground organizers and we're looking at I was just looking at the the numbers uh, in that Georgia race you mentioned eight million dollars raised six six million already spent and I want to see how much was spent on TV ads because I yeah. bet you it's significant yeah. so that's not proven to actually talk to voters voters of color who are almost half of uh, you know, half of the base for the Democratic Party. So I'm going to say the party has a race problem. If they don't figure it I, out, they're I not going to be able to transform. I, I think it's it's a race problem. It's also a tactics problem. It's a um, it's an episodic problem. I mean, there's a lot of pieces here. What do so, you mean episodic? Like every two years type yeah, thing? Yeah, you come in, you know, for a couple months and you say, hey, here I am, vote for me. But you're not engaging people in the process on an ongoing basis. And I'll give you an example of what I'm doing. It's what I did after I won the state Senate race. Um, we mobilized so many volunteers in that race and then even more in the congressional race. We had 1,100 volunteer, active volunteers who gave us over 10,000 hours of time. We had 83,000 supporters across the country who gave an average contribution of $23 each. And we raised almost $3 million. So. Our work was about organizing people on the ground. We knocked on 170,000 doors. We made over 290,000 phone calls. One of the most active congressional races, even for a House race, we approached Senate, uh, you know, the sort of the levels of, of a Senate candidate. So what I did after the state Senate with our volunteers and what I'm doing now with these volunteers is I'm building up a campaign infrastructure that stays in touch with people, that mobilizes them on the campaign side, not only around my legislation like free college or the access to council bill, but also engages them on other races that we need to win up and down the ticket, helping to get progressives elected, helping to get women of color elected, weighing in on the Georgia race so that people see that we're not just talking to them when we want them to vote for us, but we're actually engaging them in the struggle. We're building leadership abilities up and down the ladder. We're building the pipeline. I'm really working with a lot of exciting women of color okay, candidates. Okay, right, let's just stop right now. <laughs> let's let's hear some names. Who 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 Who's very exciting right now? Well, Manka Dingra is running for the state Senate in the 44th, 45th district here in Washington, mm -hmm. and she is um, fantastic. She's We got to know each other 20 years ago on domestic violence issues, but she's been a prosecutor. She's fabulous. If she wins that seat, it flips control of the state Senate. So she's an Indian American. She's a Sikh American. It's really exciting to see okay. her. In and when's her? It's her election. In it'll the, be in November. In November. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it'll be in November. So right. she's very excited. And you're you're teaching. Basically, you're guiding them on this 
strategy of organizing and stay in touch, stay Try, in touch trying with voters. To, trying to really do that. And um, and then there's two exciting candidates, women of color in Sammamish, who are running for the city council in Sammamish. We're excited about that. Um, we're teeing up some congressional candidates. I won't tell you which districts, but there's one in California. Very excited. I'm very excited about her oh, as a yeah. possible woman of color oh, candidate. Oh, okay. Um, and so we're, you know, we're really working all the way up and down because you can't just focus on congressional races. I mean, I got news for anybody who wants to change race and politics. You've got to focus all the way up and down the ladder. It you, you got to build the pipeline because. I went straight to the state Senate, and then I went to Congress after two years. That's an unusual path. Most women of color do have to sort of build, um, you know, build their base and build what they need. So, and we need people in local offices and state offices. So, I'm really looking at all levels of office, and we are also going to do on the campaign side. Um, another kind of bugaboo of mine is that different organizations do sectoral training. So you've got Emily's List that does an amazing job kind of training people, women candidates on women's issues, you know, like here's how you run as a woman, but um, not necessarily dealing with the issues of racial justice or labor or the environment. Yeah, I'm going to just say what's been traditionally associated with women's issues is far too narrow. Totally. Criminal justice reform and immigration reform, all these are... Women's, women's issues. issues. No, exactly. Education. Because it's not like I'm a woman on Monday and an immigrant on Tuesday and a worker on Wednesday, right. and a mom on Thursday. I'm right, all right. of those things well, all of the time. Well, I mean, it just one of the things that is my, uh, you know, one of my big goals in my life is to just like we were talking about building bridges, is to encourage groups like Emily's List to take justice issues as women's issues, like the Women's March platform and others are, are starting to do. And I think they're starting to move in that direction. But what I really think we need to do is not wait for that to happen from them, but create our own sets of trainings. So I'm creating a training where I'm going to invite Emily's List. I'm going to invite the environmental groups that do Enviro training. I'm going to invite the labor groups who do the labor training. And then I'm going to invite candidates. And I'm going to say, if you want to run as a progressive candidate, these are all the issues that we need. And guess what? If you are really building a base with all of these communities, that's how you win. You can't just win as a labor candidate, but not know anything about immigrant rights or run as a reproductive health candidate, but not know anything about criminal justice. You really need to have all of that together. That's so, excellent. So we're we're going to pull those groups that are already doing excellent trainings in their areas together, and we're going to say, okay, this is an intersectional training where you get to go to all of these different groups and hear what all of them are saying and educate yourself about what it means to build a progressive future for our country. It is not single issue. It is multi-sectoral it has to be. And if you're going to win, you've got to engage young people and brown people and women and labor unions and environmental, you know, environmental folks. It's got to be all of that together. That's exciting. I'm really excited about it. Is this only in Washington State? Well, for now. I mean, we're going to try it out here and see how it goes. We got to stay in touch. For, for May. And then I'd love to work with you and figure out how we do it in other places. Yes. And it's part of what I'm also bringing to 
the DNC and, you know, you talked about organizing. I mean, one of the things I've said to Tom and and Keith obviously is is right in there on this already himself. We are pushing hard for the DNC to invest in year-round organizing, leadership development, boots on the ground, build the momentum from a campaign ground up. Don't just stick the candidate in an, in a room to raise money all the time. Get them out on the doors. Talk to people. Knock on doors. Engage your 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 youth and you know folks who really care. Get them involved because that's when we will win. Mm. All right. So we have been talking. <laughs> I don't know how long. It's like I'm just like I was like overwhelmed with the scale, the magnitude of what you're taking on, uh, who you're carrying with you uh, to DC. So who sustains you? I get who you're sustaining, but who keeps you going? Well, um, my beautiful partner, my my spouse, who is just um, really a rock for me and just grounds me every day. And this is hard work. It's really, really hard work. And it's hard work not only for me, but it's hard work for the family that supports you. And you know, I just don't think they get enough credit, but he's brilliant and he understands me and he understands my vision and he is so dedicated to helping me to achieve that vision. So um, he is really important. My son, um, who- How old's your son? He's 20. Mm -hmm. um, and my son's he's, 19. He's so very involved with the yeah. Black Lives Matter movement and on campus and, you know, has a fabulous social justice perspective. He used to edit my speeches, actually. Um, he's done that for many years. <laughs> really? He's a great writer. Um, he is. He was actually originally an African studies major, and just was taking a class on the history of incarceration in this country. And you know, just really amazing. I really look to him both to sustain me and remind me of what I'm fighting for this wow. next generation. But also, you know, he reminds me of how much young people in this country have to offer to us. I mean, they're so wise. You don't have to explain to them intersectionality; they know it mm -hmm. already. And so he really teaches me a lot. And I learn a lot from the young people that are involved in our campaign. You know, we had the support. I'm so grateful to the support of so many young people, even folks who couldn't yet vote, who came out to volunteer on my campaign, as well as people who were in, you know, school and universities. And they were all out in force for me and have continued to be in force for me because they get what I'm trying to do and they know that that's the way forward. And they're looking for politicians who have the courage to tell the truth and who have the courage to stand up for things and who have the courage to say, you know what, we need everybody. It's not like we know exactly what to do. We're listening to you. We're hearing your voices and we are right there with you. So. He, he reminds me of that. And then I've got a lot of women, friends, mentors, people who have been so generous with me, um, you know, in their time and their and their love. We have a small group of women, Vanita Gupta, who was the uh, former uh, attorney general for civil rights mm -hmm. under Obama. Yeah. Um, she's a dear friend of mine, Rinku Sen, who runs the Applied Research Center now, mm -hmm. Race Forward, um, Elise Hogue, who's the head of NARAL, and Ai-jen Poo, um, who, the domestic from the Domestic Workers Alliance, and then uh, Judith Dianus Brown from Advancing uh, uh, the Advancement right. Project, mm -hmm. and we all did Rockwood together, and we became very closely connected, and we've stayed very closely connected, and we really support each other and bounce right. ideas off of each How other. How many years ago was Rockwood? Because for people listening, Rockwood is a fantastic leadership training yeah. uh, process. It's year a, long, year long. Yeah, right? it's a year long. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, we were in the class that did it, I think, in 2011. Okay. So, okay. So you uh, were already, a, you know, a leader in the in, in because the because of my work on immigrant rights. Yeah. And I was also running at the time. We belong together, which was a campaign to your point earlier about women's issues, about why immigration is a women's issue, mm-hmm. and really trying to bring together sort of the mainstream white women's movement with women of color and immigrant rights. Mm-hmm. Well, um, what you were talking about the circle of women that uh, you went through that training with and. Uh, service support. I'm just a strong believer yeah. in drawing women together who want to uh, work on the world, but also getting personal support. Totally. Yeah. You know, I, I think we met through Dorothy Thomas, yes. another dear friend of mine who yes. has been such a leader on women's issues and her life, particularly international human rights issues and really bringing the human rights frame to the United States. Um, and, you know, sh- I, I just, I, we've talked a lot about this and and, you know, I think that there's so much difficulty that we all face as individuals, as women, and then certainly as women of color. And the more we can build our own safe spaces, um, the more effective we'll be. And I see it in Congress, too. You know, the women of color tend to sit often together. Um, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Can, can you just explain to me, um, do you think uh, because there are more women of color and your you going into Congress it just even enhances that group more small but uh, growing that there'll be a woman of color caucus you know we talked about Shirley Chisholm one of the innovations she introduced when she went into the state legislature back in the 60s was a tri caucus that included black and brown representatives are we going to see something similar with women of color? It's an interesting question. You know, there is the Progressive Caucus, which I would say has a lot of women of color in it. Not all, but a lot. So that tends to be a place where we women of color speak up and, and have a lot of leadership. And then, of course, there is the Tri-Caucus. There's the Asian Caucus, which I'm the chair of the immigration um, subcommittee for the API caucus. Um, there's the Black caucus and there's the Hispanic caucus. Um, and different members are on multiples of them. Um, so it would be interesting to see if, it, if it's worth having a women of color caucus. There is a women's caucus. Um, I would have to talk to some of the folks who have been there for a while and see what they think about it. But uh, I'll take that back. I mean, I think that certainly there's an informal women of color caucus. Well, as you guys are passing notes and sitting together. You know, I mean, you know? I, I don't know about passing notes, but I think that, you know, people sit together. I think we really respect each other. I think we often call out to each other to be the first on each other's bills. Um, I know I look to Barbara Lee for uh, a number of things because I've always respected her. And she's my congresswoman, by the way. You know, Barbara Lee speaks for me. Yeah, right? she I speaks mean, for me. Yes, I think she is amazing. Yeah. And um, so I think you know, and I and I think women in general, like Jan Schakowsky, is another one that I work very closely with and really respect. Um, and then of course we've got some great men um, that I'm very close to, like Keith Ellison and Mark Pocan, also Raul Grijalva. I mean, these are all co-chairs of the Progressive Caucus. Um, And so we're working to just support each other, to build each other's work, because really we all have the same vision. Yeah. And it's, uh, well, you give me hope uh, (laughs) because, you know, but uh, here I am. I'm hopeful. Are you hopeful? I'm hopeful. So many people are just, we're we're dogged, we're, we're, we're run down. A lot of people I know don't even watch cable news. It's too yeah. depressing. Yeah. The bombing in Syria was another thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, 
no, it's just so yeah, terrible. It's bad, One. That's what I I so what? What is the source of your hope? Your hopefulness. Well, look, I'm an organizer, and I believe that strength comes from crisis. That's where strength emerges, and we are in a time of crisis. I tell people, yes, you're right. We're fighting for the soul of our country right now. Let's be very clear of about what's at stake. But that is the moment when people wake up. And I think that's what happened. A lot of people across the country woke up and realized that if they had said before that they didn't really like politics or politics wasn't important or you know they were disdainful of politicians, well, this is what you get. And so all of a sudden, there are people who are engaged who have never been engaged before. And when I did my first town hall in March, and I'm just about to do four more town halls this month, but when I did my first town hall in March, a thousand people showed up, Amy. Wow. And we had to turn people away, and we had an additional 2,700 people on Facebook Live. So I asked the question at the very beginning. I said, how many of you have ever... It, 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 that this is the first time that you're coming to, an, a, to a town hall with an elected official stand up. Three quarters of the audience stood up. Wow. So that's the opportunity we have. Yeah. And that's why I'm hopeful. All these women who are running for office, women of color who are running for office, they never thought about it before. And some of them say to me, you know, I never thought I could do it. But then I saw you and I was like, well, you know, if she's taking the plunge, maybe I can do it. Like, that's what we're doing. We're providing a pathway for other women to see themselves and our role models the way that Shirley Chisholm did all those years ago. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, yes, this is possible. You can do this too. And you should. And organizers should be in Congress and should be in elected office. And you can be an organizer first and a Congress member second, or you can tie them together and make sure that you're really bringing those perspectives to bear. And yes, we need your voices, whether it's as a voter or whether it's running for office. Mm. Yep, I am totally lifted. And uh, Congresswoman, I guess here, 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 here's my you know question. Uh, Seattle's beautiful. And I've been, you know, looking at the the water and kind of feeling the vibe. It's so cool here. How do you go to DC uh, and bring some of that energy and spirit from? And how do you keep uh, how do you keep engaging when you're across the country? Uh, the movement that will sustain you and lift you and you know, show up for you and yeah. the politics you're fighting for. Well, you know, everyone says that they represent the best district in the country, but I actually do represent <laughs> the best district in the country. You see how gorgeous it is. I come back, I breathe a lot of this air. Um, I take in the support that I clearly have and feel from people across the district. And I just remember, as I always have done, that I came to this country and I got this incredible opportunity to go from being an immigrant with nothing to being a congresswoman. And I have a responsibility to pay it forward and to build the kind of world that will make us all proud to have America be the kind of country, that more perfect union that we're supposed to be striving for. That's what inspires me is, yeah, we can get there. We know we're not perfect, but we are always pushing to get there. And with many hands on that moral arc of the universe, it will bend towards justice more quickly. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thanks so much for joining us on Democracy in Color. You are rad, totally <laughs> rad. I'm, I'm, I'm breathing you. the same air. It's good. Thank you thanks so much. Thanks so much for your work.
Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded at Orbit Audio in Seattle, Washington, produced by Lulu Matute and edited by Joe Reinecke. Special thanks to Mackenzie Mastrud, Ansel Hertz, and the inspirational Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. <laughs> <laughs>